Wonderful to be together this morning in our study of God's Word and uh, fitting the way the Lord providentially puts the music together. It simply just works as He plans those things out. We are in Luke chapter 18, and we are glorying over and over again in the gospel, in the, the words of Christ, in the message of Christ, in, in His travels to Jerusalem to accomplish this work as it's given to us in the narrative. And last time you remember, we honed in on this parable Jesus tells in Luke 18. And what is striking about the parable is the contrast, of course, between someone who believes that they are good enough on their own to have God's approval and someone who is decidedly the opposite, the tax collector, the outcast, sometimes called a publican, the guy who was a traitor of his own people and an extorter of money, a criminal element of society. He's where he doesn't belong. He is in the temple. He is praying in the, in the story Jesus tells. And yet he is completely different in his perspective than the Pharisee. You remember verse 13, he stood a distance away, this publican worshiper, in other words, there is nothing in me that gives me a place before God. There's nothing in me that would commend me to God in some sort of petition or prayer. There's nothing that would even allow me to badger God for something that I felt that I needed. I'm not even worthy of false gods in that sense. Here I am praying in the house of the living and true God. There's no in inherent goodness in me to attract him. And then it says he's unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. In other words, I have no right to address him. Without some payment, without some uh, pain, without some cost to me, uh, I, I have no right to address him. And even if I were to pay a cost, could not earn it. So all I can do is grieve in the most demonstrable way that I can think of. I won't lift up my eyes and I will on my chest, the very place, the core of my life that ought to know God, and yet I have no, I have no life worthy of his eye. And he says, you remember, in his prayer, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We saw last time that he was saying, send my sin away, sin away. cover me in your mercy. In other words, Deal with your wrath some other way than pouring it out on me. Be merciful to me by covering me with forgiveness, shielding me from your wrath and sending my guilt away. And he calls himself the sinner, a very demonstrable way of saying it. I am singled out in your sight as a most unworthy subject in desperate need of mercy. And so what is the Lord's final word on this? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For here it is, everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. We looked at this from the, the sort of the foundational lesson to be learned here. And that is this, salvation comes to no one whose view of God and themselves is like this Pharisee. For someone to walk away from this story 
without that lesson would be to com be completely uh, ignorant of what Jesus' point was. Salvation comes to no one whose view of God and themselves is like the Pharisee. So to look at it the other way, true conversion happens only when, only when a sinner comes to the deep conviction of precisely the opposite of this Pharisee. You show me a genuine believer and I'll show you a, a person who came to the place where they would never presume to have anything in themselves that would attract God. You show me a true Christian and I'll show you a person who came to the utter end of themselves. They found no hope in their own goodness. They saw themselves as unworthy, utterly unworthy of God's eye, deserving nothing, crying out for God to give them mercy for their ruined condition. However they may have expressed it in whatever way they said it to God at their conversion. If you're here today and you are forgiven by God through Jesus Christ and justified in his sight, that's what you came to. All genuine believers, we know, came to the place where they knew they were unworthy. They were utterly unworthy and they are unworthy still. In the Christian life, we worship Christ. That is to say, he is all worthiness. The worthiness belongs to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also true that having learned that main lesson last week, we are, we are brought to the, to the place as Christians where we have to ask the question, does this same perspective show up even after conversion? Does this same pharisaical attitude the same ugly sin of self-exaltation that we see in this Pharisee, does it rise up in us after conversion, making us ineffective, destroying our testimony, hurting our walk with Christ, trying in its foolish attempt to steal the limelight from the Lord Jesus? Instead of the humble unworthiness we confessed when we were saved, we know it is true. We can go right back to a high opinion of ourselves and a condescension toward people around us. The sad fact is that we can fall into the same gross sin of thinking highly of ourselves. The very sin, beloved, that kept us from the gospel for as long as it did is the same sin that can hinder the power of the gospel in our walk with Christ. We can actually descend into the folly of believing that we've somehow become suddenly worthy of God's notice apart from Christ. Look at the ninth chapter of Luke for a moment. I want to sort of give you some practical helps for how to stay away from saddling up to the Pharisee in Luke 18. You remember back in Luke 9, if you've been with us in our study of Luke Jesus was with his disciples and it says in verse 46 of Luke 9 that an argument arose among them <laughs> as to which of them might be the greatest. An argument arose among them. I read that sentence and I say, oh, such petty guys. Come on, we would never. I mean, guys, you're walking with the Lord. You're right there. You can see him. We struggle to have faith because Jesus is not seen by us, us yet. We love him by faith. But you were there. 
I mean, you were with him. And an argument arose as to which might be the greatest. The translation is deceiving. They were, in the original construction, comparing themselves with each other to determine some sort of ranking. As if to, to size one another up. Some spiritual pecking order, some personal pecking order, practical pecking order, some just human talent pecking order, strengths, weaknesses. And they came to conclusions. I'm sure they thought to themselves that by comparison, God sees me as more significant in some way than that person or that group of people. And despite how they might brag, despite all their bragging, people should know that in the kingdom, when we finally get there, it'll all come out who I was compared to you. This is what was happening with the disciples. And while it, it on the one hand, rightly shocks us at the absurd pettiness, we need to get very honest here. I resonate with that. I don't like it, but I have to resonate with it. Because the, the people of God are to be a people marked by the character and grace of Jesus Christ and particularly his work as our Savior. We are to be characterized and marked by the grace of Jesus Christ. Most notably, the work that he did in laying his life down. In fact, in the early church, when they got together, there was a time in the early church because of the passion of their growth in Christ that it says in Acts 4.13 that people who were around them began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What was that? Well, the book of Acts doesn't explain it, but you must know if you knew that somebody had been with Jesus, they were, they were trying to love like him and and treat one another as he was known to have treated people with his kindness and reaching out to sinners and forgiveness. The church today is supposed to be having this kind of impact. In fact, you might assume when you read the headlines and the evangelical posts and, and read the books and go to conferences, you might assume that there is such a tremendous resurgence um, of, of God saving people. They're coming in. We're, gonna, we're, we're on the cusp of some sort of massive gospel influence in the culture. We're supposed to have this huge resurgence of the doctrines of grace. Some massive outpouring of kindness from God upon thousands of young people drawn to the gospel. And we're all singing the same thing. All I have is Christ. We're reaching out with the truth and proclaiming salvation in the next generation. You would think, you would think that hours upon hours of emphasis on our unworthiness would lead to a deep hatred for exalting ourselves. And yet what do we find? especially in our culture. The church can't get over itself. We have an entire, entire parts of our landscape 
growing up with deep roots all about how big we are and how special we are and how useful we are and how much we do for Jesus and for God and how much people ought to recognize it and how much we sell it and market it and brand it. And then when, when another people group is mistreated by a people group, the one group in the church looks down with contempt and points the finger and the other group who is mistreated won't forgive. Somehow we've gotten to the place where our worthiness is so to be recognized that we can't reach across to people that are different than us and love them like Christ loved us at the cross. And if we are not loved by somebody in the church, we can't reach out and forgive them, showing the power of the gospel at its highest level. Why? Because somehow we deserve some justice for that. We've bifurcated ministries into little subcultures that reluctantly tolerate one another. We make petty comparisons all day long. Our little subculture really can't stand to be together with the others. It's the old versus the young. Can you imagine having a church full of God rescuing sinners of all ages and we can't even spend time together because of some age gap? We're the bound up versus the liberated. We're the cool versus the uncool. We've turned styles and fads into icons of personal significance and elevation above others. It's sad that we have conferences where we say we're together for the gospel, but we try to outdo each other in every way. We publish the great things we say. We publish other people's talking about what we say, and we publish that. We send self-portraits to people we don't even know. I mean, what in the world? Beloved, what is going on with all this? Well, we're pursuing personal greatness in the eyes of others at such a level that it contradicts the claims that we make about Christ. He is supposed to be worthy. We say we don't deserve the gospel. Look, unworthy means unworthy. It is by grace alone, sola gratia, but we've turned sola gratia into dignum gratia, worthy of grace. Listen, if you've received grace, then you must understand your need of it because that's what grace is. It came by grace. An argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Perhaps they had already gloried too much in being the chosen ones. And that's how a Christian gets to the place where they go back to believing that they are good enough on their own and looking down with condescension like the Pharisee did to the publican. You're nothing. We take our eyes off Christ and we begin to compare ourselves with others and we try to parade our prowess in front of them. You remember what had just happened before that account in Luke 9. They couldn't cast out some demons. They looked foolish because they didn't have enough faith. Jesus told them that. He did not believe. And there's another problem with us. We actually think no one can see what we're doing 
when we're promoting ourselves and our own legacy. We, we actually believe no one can see it, that, that we're somehow able to hide the motives. But even in Luke 9, verse 47 and 48, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, dealt with them as such. This is our problem, just thinking now back to Luke 14 for a moment. Luke 14. You remember what happened in the parable of the guests and the parable of the dinner. Verse 7, Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests at a, a dinner he had gone to. Why was he speaking the parable? Because he noticed that in the early verses of chapter 14, these Pharisees and leaders of Israel and the elite were picking all the chief seats and wanting to be the honored ones. And so he began, verse 7, speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they'd been picking out these places of honor. And he told them, you ought to not go there. You ought to pick the places that, that are not exalted. Why? Because then how humiliating is it if you get to the judgment and you have taken all of the chief spots in so-called evangelicalism and you find out you don't know Christ. Now you have no place. And in the parable, that's what he was saying. When you're invited to a dinner, you Pharisees pick all the, the chief seats, but then the, the host has to come and say, that's not your seat. Same principle then repeated in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will, exalt, will be exalted. Jesus said this many times and has now prepared for his disciples to hear it once again in Luke 18. You know, believers claim it's only because we want to be the best we can be and just achieve our goals. I heard that recently. Somebody said, oh, it's not selfish ambition. It's just goal setting. Really? Well, if that were the case, then the Christian who sets goals would be absolutely humbled at whatever the, the Lord gives in achieving the goal. It wouldn't be treating other people sinfully. Even those claims are often all tangled up in the desire to craft an image of ourselves that hides the reality behind the facade. Look, here's the fact. We have serious limitations. We all suffer from human weaknesses that actually damage our reputation in the eyes of others. That's a fact. And the best of the things about us, the best of the things about us that would commend us to others are tainted by sin that so easily entangles us. And so we develop habits of minimizing what's not so good about us and we work hard to rebrand ourselves to others. And there's nothing particularly redeeming about going around self-loathing and airing your worst sides. It's not helpful because you could be tempted to self-pity and do the same thing in a prideful way. Oh, I'm nothing, but really you're just asking people to feed you with how you are something. We are very subtle. But neither is it right for conscience sake to inflate your self-assessment, attempting to sort of craft this better image of the reality. What are some of the ways we do this? Ah, we, we exaggerate our reputation. We looked at this many, many weeks ago in the study of Luke. We exaggerate our reputation like the Pharisees do. We embellish how people see us, the stories about ourselves. We drop important names. 
We even lie about what we have accomplished and make it sound better than it was. You know, you only took two classes at the university, but oh, you did your coursework at Oxford. Yeah, you barely took two online classes and didn't pass, but oh, you did your coursework there. I mean, that's what we do. You drop hints of your superiority. You lead conversations to where it talks about you. Somebody says something about what they've done and you just one-up them. This is the constant practice of those who aren't watching their hearts in check. And then you bait others for a compliment and your stories that you tell always make you shine. Despite the fact that scripture warns over and over again, if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Galatians 6 and so Jesus had to say it woe to you Pharisees woe to you he said in Luke eleven forty three. 43 for you love the front seats in the synagogues look that wasn't cause for him to say hey be careful don't want the chief seat no he said woe to you curse on a heart that wants the chief place and the respectful greetings in the marketplace always trying to put on the most pious look so that others would publicly honor you you loved being called rabbi. You walk around in long robes that talk about your spirituality. How do we stay far away from this? Back to Luke 18. Notice, first of all, just this publican. We looked at him last week, but I just, before I give you some practical steps, here we must look at what he did. This is the whole point of the parable and why Jesus gives the principle at the end of it in verse 14. This is it. Just look at the publican. Verse 13, standing some distance away. I have nothing in me that gives me a place before God. Is that how you live? Is that how you think? There's nothing in me that gives me a place before God. The fact that I can pray, the fact that I can go before the Lord, the mere fact that I have been given everything because he didn't spare his son, Romans 8, that gives me my place. Not me. He gave me my place. He brought me to it. I truly did not gain the place on my own before a holy God. And when I came to Christ... I, I had to remember that and know that, and the Spirit of God convicted me of that. Listen, beloved, that has to trace its way through your Christian life and mature in your Christian life. The same mentality. I have no place before God in me, inherent in me. He puts me there. He gives me place. He gives me access. The publican is saying there is no inherent goodness to attract God to me. That's right. There's nothing in my flesh, nothing in my fallenness, nothing in what was crucified on the cross in, in terms of me being in Christ and crucified in him. There was nothing in the old habits, nothing in the old appetites that would ever commend him to me. Nothing in my talents, nothing in who I am. All of that, even being made in the image of God, make no mistake. People made in the image of God go to hell forever for rejecting Jesus Christ. Do not imagine that being made in the image of God gives you some privilege with your old life or some excuse for your flesh. It does not. We are corrupt. Until you meet Christ, you're a child of wrath storing it up. 
Therefore, when you come to Christ, it should be like this, an ashamed disposition. And when you live for Christ, it should know and acknowledge at all times that I in myself am no different than that old person. He's dead as to his bondage, but his old appetites rattle around in me. And if I am apart from Christ, I am undone by him. Verse 13, he's unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. That, what does he mean? That's no right to address you. I have no right to address you. You know, Peter will later say this in 1 Peter 2 when he says, look, if you address God, your, your God of the universe as father, if you address him intimately as your father, then how should you conduct yourself during your time of stay on the earth? In holy conduct, because you have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And then he says here, I'm singled out in your sight as the most unworthy. <laughs> I mean, this is important and in the principles I'm going to give you for the habits of life we ought to live by, this is a crucial part of it right here. I'll just give you a little hint of it. He singles himself out in the sight of God as the most unworthy. I am the sinner. Listen, what gets us into trouble is we begin to imagine we are better than the person next to us. Say, oh, you don't know my parents, pastor. You don't know my spouse, and you don't know my children, and you don't know my coworkers. They're evil people. Yes. And everyone around this publican, no doubt in his old lifestyle, was the worst of pagans. And he said, I'm singled out as the worst. So what's the Lord's final word? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Here's what we must note about this last principle. And this is, as I said, repeated by Christ over and over. So this must not be missed in the Christian life. First of all, notice everyone who exalts himself. So now you know none will escape. None will escape the reality of judgment who exalts themselves in the presence of God as though they are good enough on their own. I don't care how they've lived. I don't care how many sacrifices they made for human beings on the horizontal level, on the vertical level. If they have brought themselves before God saying I'm good enough, they will not escape what he says there. They will be humbled. Daniel 4, 37, what a great Old Testament illustration when Nebuchadnezzar looked upon his empire and says, look at what all I in my strength have accomplished. And God sent him into the field for seven years with an insane mind to humble him. And when he came out in verse 37, it records that Nebuchadnezzar said, you are the God of, of all. You're the king of all and you are able to humble those who walk in Pride, you're able. The very fact that it happened shows that God is willing. 
Look at Psalm 2. Keep your finger in Luke 18 and look at Psalm 2. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, oh, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. And then he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the son, the servant of God who rescues. This is represented, of course, by the nation of Israel, the first proclaimed son of God, the one whom he rescues. Ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is a messianic look at the reign of Messiah, the anointed one. Verse 9, you're going to break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And so now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. He is worthy, not us. So that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The implication is rather than go up against him. None will escape that. So back to Luke 18. Everyone who exalts himself. Notice also he shall be humbled. Why? Because as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 42, 8. God will not share his glory. I am the Lord, that, my, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to some graven image. Something human that, is, that has divine things attributed to it, that is not going to happen. The human and divine come together in the perfect Son of God, the incarnate Christ. There is nothing else on earth that does that that brings the human and divine together like that. Only in Christ and only in our union with Christ do we find redemption as sinful human beings. But no earthly image is ever to be looked upon as enough for God or worthy of worship. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. Which, by the way, is why the Proverbs say over and over again that pride is what he hates. A proud heart is sin, Proverbs 21.4. And these are the things the Lord hates. A proud look. An abomination to the Lord it is, Proverbs 16.5. And the fear of the Lord is to hate those things. To hate evil and to hate pride and to hate arrogance. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16.18. A man's pride will bring him low, Proverbs 29.23. In John 5, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said in verse 44, do you, know, do you know why you don't believe in me? Because you seek glory from one another. Oh, it's so true. 
And we fall into that trap as Christians. It's, it's like, I want to feel what it feels like when I'm esteemed by human beings. And in doing so, we forfeit the work of Christ, the blessing of the worthy one. So what is Jesus' answer here? Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-humbling, listen, write this down. Self-humbling is Christianity. In practice, in your daily life, in your heart, in your mind, and in your life, self-humbling is Christianity. You say, well, how do I humble myself? Well, it's not declaring to others how humble you are. <laughs> that ain't, isn't gonna happen. It's also not saying, I'm so humbled while you advertise your involvement in something great. Have you ever seen that? So humbled to be at this event doing this with these people. Oh, my word. Humbled? Boy, those words are going to haunt you as a Christian. How do you humble yourself? Here's six spiritual habits that God exalts. Six spiritual habits that God exalts. If we're to humble ourselves that God might lift us up for his purposes, here's how to do it. Number one, live desperate and needy. Live desperate and needy. What do you mean? John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what is he talking about there? He's talking about the vine and the branches, the vital nutrients of the person of Christ given by his spirit through his word and through your faith and obedience, those vital nutrients flowing for fruit bearing. Live in desperate neediness for Christ's nutrients, his power, his truth, what he wants you to know, how he wants you to live, what he says about us. Now you compare yourself to other people, you, you are moving in the realm that's outside of what Christ wants and what he says. Christ's opinions are all that matter. Christ's opinions about you, about your failures, about your successes, about the people around you. That's all that matters. If you don't know what he says about it, you're left with you and the people around you and your assessment of that. So you're not living desperate and needy and you'll become self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-protective, self-exalting, self-worship. Live desperate and needy. Remind yourself. Confess it every time. Wow, Lord, I've gone so long without praying. How sinful of me. You are so kind to work with me when I'm not prayerful and desperate and needy. Lord, I compare myself with that individual who has been such an, a source of envy for me because I love their gifts and I love what, what you do in their life and I want it. I want it for myself because I want to feed myself on it. Lord, please forgive me for that envy. I need you. I need your plan for my life. I need your work in my life. Nothing more, nothing less. I don't need that life. I don't need that job. I don't need that house. I don't need that person's clothes, their looks. I don't need any earthly thing. I need you and what you've given me because you say, apart from you, I can do nothing. Please forgive me for wanting things and even coming to you and 
asking for them when you have not given them to me? I'm not talking about biblical things. I'm not talking about good things. I'm talking about petty things, vain things. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Live desperate and needy. Secondly, be biblically precise about sin. Be biblically precise about sin. Man, our culture is so clever. The human heart has manifested its cleverness in our culture. We're wordsmiths. Look, don't just sing about the cross. Know its terrors and its shame so that you never redefine sin. Call it what it is. Your sin isn't bad because of the destruction of other people's lives. That's bad enough. Your sin is bad because of the offense that it is. And if you want to know what offense it is, look at Christ. The innocent son of God, when he bore your guilt for your sin, was rejected by his father. We're going to talk about that again tonight. How do we deal with the the hurts and pains that people do things to us? When they do that, how do we deal with it? You deal with it like Christ dealt with it. But it must begin with calling sin what it is. Let the scriptures expose the heart behind your sin. Sometimes we say something that comes out of our mouth and it is clearly offensive. And then someone will say, man, you, you sinned against me. And we will say, no, I didn't. Well, this, these words came out of your mouth. Well, I didn't mean those. Did you know Jesus says in Matthew 12, out of the mouth the heart speaks? That's called being precise about your sin. Out of the mouth the heart speaks. I don't, I don't know what your motive is, but you certainly, you certainly don't if you're going to make a strong and fast conclusion when the Bible is telling you, hey, your words reflect your heart. But see, what we do is we want to exonerate our motives, and so we just do a whole redefine. Know the... Know the offense of the cross. Don't just sing about it. Know all that scripture says happened as Christ bore our sin. And you will learn to be biblically precise about sin. That's a habit God exalts. Number three. Starve your appetite for glory. Starve your appetite for glory, right? We saw this in the study of John 3 with John the Baptist. <laughs> He was, he was the toast of the wilderness. This is a guy who came out of nowhere, living by himself for years, preparing to be a prophet, left home and family. The guy had a testimony uh, that could have built a mega ministry. The guy came out of the wilderness, eating strange things, super self-disciplined, no fear of persecution, and he came preaching. And what was his goal? To be the forerunner of Christ. So even the prophets spoke about him before he arrived. Anointed with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. The guy had a road show that would not stop. And you know what? People came and they came by the thousands upon thousands and he was baptizing them and he was the greatest prophet. Even the savior whom he foretold said that he was the greatest prophet. 
and they were coming to him. And, and Jesus comes on the scene and he starts baptizing near Anon. And, and John's disciples are like all of us. Well, I don't know that I like that. We're the, we're the big show in town. And that guy is baptizing and what are we going to do about him? And Jesus said, you follow him. Get away from me. To, to, to draw attention to me would be as ridiculous as a best man saying, you who I'm over here during the ceremony. He must increase. Oh, we say it. We sing it. We preach it. God exalts the habit of starving your appetite for glory. Can you serve Christ in secret? Faithfully? For as many years as he wants? Never be noticed by anyone but him? Do you want your, your strengths at the forefront? Do you say you want Christ to increase, but then you secretly desire recognition? Look, all of us have to say yes. Yes, pastor, we do. How tragic. Is your greatest joy when people speak of Christ, even though it was your practical investment that took them there? John the Baptist doesn't want his name anywhere. He doesn't want prominence. His satisfaction came when he saw everyone coming to Christ. It was his joyous privilege to have played a role in it that he did not deserve. And when he pointed to Christ, he said, that's it. I'm done. Thank you. What a privilege. Nobody needs to know John the Baptist's name anymore. So... Habit number one, live desperate and needy because apart from Christ you can do nothing. Habit number two, be biblically precise about sin. Stop redefining it. And if you're going to know what sin is, then look at the cross. Study the cross, the shame and the terror of it. Then starve your own appetite for glory. Fourth, truly believe that you're the chief of sinners. <laughs> truly believe that you're the chief. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.15, among whom I am the top of the list. I am the worst. I'm the foremost. I'm the chief. Why did Paul say that? Because he was an offense to God in persecuting the church, God's people. And when he was saved on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, why are you kicking against the goads, which was another way of saying, look, when the, when the horse is goaded to move forward and it kicks against it, why are you doing that, Paul? Because he, he was an arrogant Pharisee who loved, like the Pharisee in Luke 8, to exalt his own righteousness. And when he came to Christ... The Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from doing it again, from exalting himself because of his ability, his superior intellect, his education, his background. Do you confess you're the chief in your family, in your friendships, in your marriage? You're the chief or 
Or do you think your spouse is worse? Before the Lord, when you're honest when you're own, in your own heart, do you see yourself as a bigger problem? If when I ask that, you were thinking about people upon whom you have put the reflectors, you need to turn those to you. Number five, offer thanksgiving for any kind of existence God ordains for you. Offer thanksgiving for any kind of existence God ordains for you. The scriptures tell us to be thankful for everything that God gives. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks. Give thanks for everything. Rejoice in everything, the Apostle Paul would say over and over again. But here's what I think of when I think of being thankful. Be thankful that you're forgiven and not left to your sin. Every day. You don't hold on to your salvation just the same way you didn't gain it. It was granted to you by Christ, by his mercy and his grace as he moved on your heart and granted you repentance and faith. You don't believe that? You need to read your Bible more because it's there. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Regenerated and quickened by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So you could never say it had something to do with my own power in and of myself. If you have ever believed that you had some sort of inherent thing that empowered you to the gospel, you have made a grave mistake and do not yet understand grace. You want to see grace for all that it is, then you thank God that you're forgiven and not left to your sin because he would have been just to leave you in it. I think of being thankful that I'm not the worst every day that I could be. <laughs> I wasn't worse today than I was. I want to be thankful that God is as wise as he is sovereign. He's sovereign over our lives, but he's wise in it too, and he's a good God, so he cannot be wrong in his plan. I want to be thankful that I've been given life and breath because I don't deserve those things. I want to be thankful I have a Holy Spirit to comfort me with his truth. He comforts me. I want to be thankful that I know God and walk in his truth. Thankful that evil doesn't overtake me because any day it could if it were up to me. I want to be thankful that Christ was rejected for my sin and guilt, that he was rejected for it, and he wanted to be rejected for it because he asked for it. Father, forgive them. The only way a father could forgive them is if he embraced my guilt. I want to be thankful for that. And I want to be thankful that he's worthy to be exalted and he calls me to be his friend. He's worthy to be exalted and I'm not, and yet he calls me his friend. And lastly, reject outright the love of fame and wealth and fulfillment in this life. Reject it every day outright, the love of it. God may make you popular. God may give you resources. He may give you wonderful things in his common grace that that give you experiences that we might say are fulfilling, but reject the love of earthly fame and earthly wealth and some ultimate earthly fulfillment in this life. Because the scriptures say it, it is fading, it is cheap, 
It is dead at the roots. And it is falling in shame to trust in it. It cannot fulfill. It has no eternal power. It destroys people who trust in it. And it offends and dishonors God when it is used for man's exaltation. It offends God. God gets the glory. God alone gives us what we have and what we need. And he alone is worthy. So live desperate and needy. Be precise in your understanding of sin so that you see its offense. Starve your appetite for human glory. Confess that you're the chief of sinners. Offer thanksgiving for any existence God gives you, whatever it is, and reject the love of the things of this world that don't satisfy. All of that is in the story that Jesus tells in the tax collector. Be merciful to me, O God. I know I don't deserve it. He went down to his house justified. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Beloved, I know that if you're in Christ here today, you never came to God saying you can save yourself or you're good enough. But what about now in your Christian life? What are your habits? And for those of you here today, you're like, I've never heard a gospel like this. I don't even know what you're talking about. I've... I've always thought the good hopefully will weigh out the bad in the end. And you must come like this publicly. And you must say to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You call a sinner what it is, and I'm utterly corrupt. If I've, if I've not been absolutely 100% perfect, I'm, I'm, a, I'm done. Because your holiness requires 100% perfection. And you must repent. And you will find a forgiving Savior who paid for sin once for all. And you will find a new life in that Savior. He will be your Savior. You must come like this tax collector. Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful little parable that Jesus tells for it is not little in its theology and its depth and Lord we're gripped by how often we betray what happened in our conversion because while you accept us you always accept us despite our sin it is true that we could have more joy and usefulness if we if we cultivated and nurtured these habits that led to this tax collector's cry for mercy. We desperately need you. Sin is what you say it is. We often try to steal glory that belongs to you alone. We, we think we're better than others. We're not very thankful when we don't get what we want and we pursue things in this life we think will fulfill and we know they never will because you've told us that. And so, Lord, help us to, to live the justified life because we came to you in faith and you justified us by your grace alone when we put our faith in Christ and repented of sin. But in the Christian life, we need to humble ourselves and realize we don't have a place before you apart from Christ. We have nothing. 
But in Christ, we have everything, which makes you the one to be exalted in our hearts, in our words, in our deeds, in our attitudes. Grow us in these things, we pray, for your glory's sake. Amen.